call is now being recorded. Yo, yo. Yo. It's your man Artic in the building once again. Your man Singar Superior. And this is the Channel 10 Podcast. Before we get into this very special episode, I need everybody to do us a favor. I need you to go to channel10podcast.com. I need you to check out what we have going on there. There should be icons there where you can click on the Twitter, you can click on Instagram, you can click on Tumblr, you can click on iTunes, you can click on Stitcher, Facebook, YouTube, wherever you are, we are, or we are coming soon. So check us out there. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you rate. Make sure you comment. Make sure you download. Make sure you send us emails at channel10podcast at gmail.com. Interact with us so we can interact with you. And I think that is my uh, introduction spiel. The extent of it, unfortunately, we don't have any advertisers yet. But once you guys do those things, we can eventually get some advertisers and get millions of dollars and quit our jobs and live happily ever after. Damn right. Be like the Bushman. Be like the Bushman. If you don't I and I are Bushman. I and I are Bushman. If you don't know about the Bushman, I need you to pull up your Spotify or, or your your Google Music or your Tidal or whatever you're using, your YouTube, and I need you to look up a dope uh, reggae band straight out of VI, that's the Virgin Islands, called Midnight, and they had this song called Bushman. And it's the realest song that was ever made in the history of music. So <laughs> check that out. Um, so yeah, after that little bit of entertainment, I guess this is a very, very special episode. We have to talk about um, everything that is going on in the city that we call home. The city that... I was not born in, but I was raised in, and the city that you were born in, but you're not there. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that city is the infamous Baltimore city of Maryland, where it's looking like Ferguson Part 4 or five, or something else out here. I've lost track, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely turning into something over the death of Mr. Freddie Gray. And um, rest in peace to that guy. Um, I guess from all of the evidence that I've seen, so far, um, you know, I got the Baltimore Sun, the Sunday edition, and um, they have various articles about it. I'm just looking through, like, the timelines of everything and what the police said happened and then what they retracted and changed and then what the people who witnessed it saw happen. And I actually watched the video for the first time earlier, and it just made my stomach sick. And um, everything is just bananas. Um what are your thoughts on it? Just opening up. 
to um, I guess I'll be uh, rather uh, transparent um, for the uh, listeners um, out there. Um, by the way, shout out to the uh, to the uh, new listeners on SoundCloud and the uh, the ones who uh, who have liked the uh, the past couple episodes. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, the the thing about me, you know, we, we we've talked about it. I am not much of a social media person, and I kind of I kind of shy away from it. And it's to the point, damn near, that I'm I, I'm literally in the ivory tower, the ivory tower. Um, but you know, yesterday between you and certain other people that will remain unnamed. Um, I've, <laughs> I've received, um, a lot of updates between family members and friends and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, just talking with you earlier, um, yesterday and, you know, I just told you I was kind of just tired about talking about this shit and, you know, I kind of wished we could just go and go back to what the podcast was originally for, which was for hip hop. And, um, I think we really only, I mean, well, I guess maybe about half and half. We talked about hip hop and um and and these types of, these types of issues, but I guess it doesn't help, you know, especially with my circumstance, my circumstance here being in Oklahoma and being a black guy. Um, but when it comes to um what's going on in Baltimore, I I, I don't know what to say. I mean. I feel like I would just say the whole, the same thing I just said, you know, in the second episode. So I think for the most part, I'll just say, if any of you guys want to, if you, if you guys are interested in hearing my whole spiel about protest, you should probably refer back to episode two. It's pretty much the same thing about the SAE protest here at, at, uh, here in Oklahoma and, and what they've done and what's going on in Baltimore. Although, of course, Baltimore is much worse. And, we have these people protesting, right? And it's it's good. Protest is good. And and to I I don't want anyone to misconstrue, you know, between, you know, me and you or especially me and how I come out about what, what my feelings about what's going on. I don't want anyone to think that I'm some Uncle Tom fuck nigga or something like that. Right. I am for protest. I am for the revolution. Whatever you want to call it, I'm for it. But you gotta think before you do things. What is the point of going around and riding and and just hitting up police cars? Because yes, they're, they're police. They have families though. You don't know. You, you don't know this cop's life. You don't know if this cop is actually someone who can actually help you up. Because you know, just being in being from Baltimore, me personally, like you know, we've talked about. This this thing isn't really new, you know. We've all every you know every now and again you'll hear about someone who was you know, um, you know who got killed or you know who who's, who's got like, really fucked up by the cops in the paddy wagon you know, or so on and so forth. And it's not really good. I mean, maybe to me personally because in a way I guess I had become kind of desensitized from you know these types of things, and it's not good. So. To a certain extent, you know, what, what has been going on and, and all the old things that have been coming up, these old videos, you know, the guy that you showed me uh, who was tased to death and, uh, and uh, what state was that? Um, I'm not sure. Was it in Oklahoma? 
I don't think so. But man, even even the video on Tulsa and that and and that ha- that happened recently. Yeah. Um, that alone is crazy. And so I think so. I so I do think that even like for me personally, seeing these things periodically, you know, just back and forth, back and forth, it does. It it, it, it has shown to me personally that I have become desensitized to black violence in urban in urban areas and it's not good. Right. Because I remember I remember being a kid and hearing about so and so being, you know, killed by the cops, being fucked up by the cops and in my head I'm just like, oh that that's what happens. And it's not a good thing. It's not. And so now just thinking about it, I feel pretty I feel kind of bad about even having that type of feeling. And but it's still at the same time just ways in which you go and, you know, the ways in which you go about doing these types of things, I don't really think um, it's going on very well. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I feel you, um, and I definitely felt you at first, but, you know, my perspective has changed over the past uh, probably like 20, I'm not even going to say 24 hours, but almost 24 hours um, initially. Um, you know, seeing these protests is one thing, but to have it hit home is another. And, um, you know, we kind of knew it was coming, but it made me think about my experience with protests. And it's kind of funny, like, I for, like, I kind of, like, forgot all about it. It's like I got older and, <laughs> and uh, you know, became desensitized and forgot about the revolution or whatever. But, you know, it made me think about my experiences with protests in my younger years and the various causes that it was for and the various ways that we went about it and the various strategies to enact some type of change. And so um, I guess to take it back to the first time I've ever protested, um, um, I was in high school and there was a company, uh, Teleflora.com or whatever, or maybe it was 1-800-Flowers. I think it was Teleflora, though. Um, and that is like a flower delivery service. And we noticed that they were only putting certain advertisements in predominantly black, lower-income areas. And it was like, you know, send some flowers because you're not a good father. It didn't say that uh, specifically, but that's pretty much what it said. Like, you know, make up for not being a good father or something like that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we happened to notice these things. And what we did was we we made a plan and we protested in front of one of the advertisements. Um, I believe it was on Alcantara Terrace, um, not too far from on Dominant and everything. Um, for people who aren't from the area, that's on the west side. So... You know, we had our signs and everything, and what we did was we made a petition, and we had, um, like, probably hundreds of people sign it who walked by, and we told them what was going on and everything, and they were down with it, and we had conversations with people and, you know, opened their eyes to it, and we got them to sign the petition. So then once we got the signatures from the petition, we sent it to the company, and they took the advertisement down and sent an apology letter. Of course, we, you know, threatened to go to the media if they didn't take it down. And I was like, wow, like, we actually made a change in the situation to where, you know, 
their advertisements are reinforcing a particular stereotype and a particular mindset in a certain community, and we were able to eradicate that by doing what we did. So that was a positive. We came in there with a strategy. We came in there with an outcome and a plan A and a plan B. Plan A being we send, you know, what we're going to send to the company, and they take it down. And if not, then we're going to go to the media, and they will end up taking it down and end up with a situation. So that was like straight boom, 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 you know, like we had it all locked down, everything was good. The second, I guess, um, major protest that I was involved in, um, and I guess there was a march in between that. I went to the Millions More uh, Movement March or whatever, I guess the anniversary, one of the um, anniversaries of the Million Man March, and... That was just a whole bunch of black people getting together and marching and going down listening to some people talk. And it's like, what really came of that? I don't know. Pretty much nothing. So then Hmm. I was involved in a protest with the uh, Hip Hop Caucus Organization, which is run by Reverend Yearwood. And so basically, um, at that time, uh, we were protesting the war in Iraq. And there was a big big protest going down in D.C. There was a couple of them, but this was like a big one. And all these different um, non-governmental, um, you know, political activist-type organizations were down there. Everybody had on their regalias of whatever organization they were in. We had our signs with our T-shirts, and we're selling them and everything like that. And it was like, we're going down here to protest the war. And the difference between this one and the other one is, like, there was no... I mean, the outcome, of course, would be to pull all the troops or whatever in the war. But it's like, there was no way that that outcome was going to happen based off of us protesting. And what it ended up being, what we realized later on is, you know, we're trying to basically go down there to sell our T-shirts so that we can get money to fund a tour that we had to get rappers to go around the country and do these these, uh, concerts that were protesting the war. And the guy who was running the organization, Reverend Yearwood, I guess he fancied himself to be like a new Martin Luther King. And, um, you know, it was just a whole lot of... uh, It was more self-interest versus movement interests. So... And not only that, you can see all the groups, because there's like a lot of different groups, including us down there. It was kind of like all these different groups were competing for media time and all this other type of stuff. So it kind of becomes less about the movement and more about the leaders and political moves for power and all this other type of stuff. And that second form of protest is kind of what I see going on and happening and it's kind of like the trend of what I see going on here. Um, and then, of course, you know, we went to Washington, D.C. for the um, 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. And I guess that was more for nostalgia and everything like that, you know, to walk yeah. in the you know path of our ancestors and go see people talk and all that. But at the end of the day, what's really coming of that? Nothing. It's more, you know more uh, political uh, rhetoric, more things for people to try to position themselves as a position of power in, you know, the movement and the leadership and, you know,
know, all this other type of stuff, but nothing's really coming of that. So I guess my fear of it is being that there's no real plan to get action or anything enacted. And seeing what I saw last night, um, it initially confirmed my fears of making one Baltimore look bad, two black people look bad, and it's just another stain on you know this legacy and this trend that's uh, going on. So mm-hmm. um, you know, I was really feeling the same way that you were feeling um, about you know protesting and how this isn't doing anything and that we need to do something more to. Um, to get our message heard, and I guess what added to that was that you know last night was the uh, the White House correspondence um, dinner, right? Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, I, I meant to bring that up to you earlier, but yeah. So basically, what happened was none of the national media was here covering it. They were all covering the correspondence dinner, so nobody really knew what was going on, and. The only people who were really covering it were local news, like Fox 45 and all that type of stuff. And mm-hmm. I just read an article where somebody from CNN said, yeah, you know, we had to cover the correspondence dinner, but by the time the morning hits, everybody's going to know what happened anyway. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, man, like all of this for not. But um, I was talking to my mother about it, and, you know, um, I mean, the images that I saw, I mean, there were... It was like they had the stormtroopers out, and, you know, they were out on Gilmore Street, and, you know, they were on these neighborhoods that I've driven through many times and maybe, you know, chilled in many a time, and, you know, it was like a lineup of these officers and riot gear and everything, and then you have all of these, um, you know, black youths kind of like standing off with them. And this is after, you know, all the peaceful part of the protest went down. This is in the middle of the night. And then they start throwing rocks and stuff. And, uh, you know, Police Commissioner Batts, he's walking around. He has his troops ready. He's giving hand signals. So he gives a hand signal. Everybody starts backing up. He gives another hand signal. A contingent of his force goes down this alley. Everybody starts running. And then, you know, eventually they arrest some people and everything like that. And I'm just like, man, this is just crazy. They're just throwing rocks at the cops. They're just being ignorant for no reason. But then my mother said, you know, talking to her, and she was like, you know, um, you know, this was years ago. I would be down there, too. And I feel like they should fight back because, you know, they should be doing all this. So, you know, she can't really blame them for doing that because I'm just, you know, the long history of the Baltimore Police Department and infringing on the rights of the citizens, especially the lower-income black citizens. And, um, you know, to a boiling point to where, you know, they want to fight back, and you can't really blame them for that. And then I'm reading more articles and stuff like that about, uh, you know, Freddie Gray and how... I think his friend said that, you know, when he looked that cop in his eye and started running, it's because this cop beat him up many times before. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm reading the articles. Um, I'm trying to find the quote. I know I highlighted it in this Baltimore Sun. I can't find it right now. But, like, he's not the first person who, who's ended up with a severed spine um, 
in the past, you know, few years, in 2005, um, somebody ended up quadriplegic, ended up trying to sue the city, got a whole bunch of yeah. money, and, uh-huh. Yeah, you know, you know so yeah, because, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah. And then there was another one in, in uh, 1997 where a dude was paralyzed from the neck down and stuff like that. So it's like, this is an ongoing thing that happens all the time. And then, you know, people, you know, there's always a story about somebody who gets arrested by the Baltimore police and then they get beat up or something terrible happens to them and there's no record of it, there's no video, there's no nothing, and they end up settling. And recently, it's kind of funny how everything is just converging at this point now because just like just in the past couple of months, even before all of this race stuff started popping off, there were these um, uh, issues with the Baltimore Police Department. It was found out that they've been paying basically settlements, you know, millions of dollars in settlements every year to people who they fucked up. Yeah. And that's kind of taxpayer money. So now you see it, like, live on TV. So it's like this is happening all the time. Now people have that chance and their opportunity to show what's going on, and they want to fight back and show their ass. And it's just like, I can't blame them, you know? Yeah. But I think um, when it comes to, like, what's going on right now, like, like the riots, um, so, so once again, I am for the protest, right. but when it comes to the rioting, um, I put myself in the shoes of being, you know, right, like being in Baltimore right now and how I get around, I get around the bus. Right. Um, and the thing is though, you know, you, while they're doing this type of shit, they are infringing on the way I get around and right. I can't exactly say that they're in it for, you know, exactly the right reasons because, you know, based on my rant about protests, for example, here, um, they protest for two weeks and they literally stopped once the cameras left and nothing has changed. I still walk around and there's still, you know, these, these racial issues that, that still come up. And there's still, you know, people will look at me as if I'm not supposed to be here and, you know, I go to Starbucks. And there's still people who look at me like today. They look at me surprised that, you know, I have five books stacked up on the table. So obviously, it's much deeper than just protests. These are really, like, really deep, you know, ideologies that have been within the fabric of this country for, for, for you know, for centuries. But the thing is, though, protest is one thing, but when you're rioting, you got to think about the people, the people you are affecting. And when I mean the people, I'm, I'm pretty much mean, like, your people. Right. So, if I'm a rioter, and okay, so put like this, so, I've heard, I mean, I, 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 I haven't really, but I know that there's been rioting around less of the market. I'm not entirely sure if they've, if there's been any harm to less of the market at all. But I've heard that there have been some windows smashed around, of some, some, some windows of less of the market that have been smashed. Now, that is true. Being a rioter, I would, I would think you consider about my city. And I never thought I would really feel this way, but if this is true, I'm pretty hurt. And I never thought I'd really be attached to, to, 
be attached to something. I don't know. I guess I guess um, you know, c- cultural that that's 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 within my city. But if you're a tag and less in the market, you should probably re- rethink that. Like rethink that. And when you're attacking less in the market, although we know nowadays there aren't a lot of black businesses there anymore, but the thing is, though, there are some. There are some who still sell food. There is still that um, that black guy and black woman, I believe it's black woman and black guy, who sell shea butters and nice savory soaps that I do enjoy. Right. <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Even when even when you go into the side where the shoe city is, there are still like three little carts there. That, but there are black men selling purses, oils, and jewelry, so on and so forth. And even some guy he bumps gold space and supreme clientele every now and again when when I, when I walk I walk you know to and fro. So although you're mad, you are affecting certain other black businesses that you probably shouldn't be affecting because in your riding, you are supposed to be uplifting black, you know, you're for black empowerment, but you aren't really doing that if you're going in the the market. Now, I know I say that there are few black businesses there, so what does that really matter? Yeah, but then think about less in the market, less, less in the market and its cultural significance that it holds within the city still. So we I mean, go yeah, like market every day. Get, you know, my, you know, like my five pounds of kale for four dollars or whatever. Exactly, it's that. And at the same time, I, I, I think you put it best when you told me what Dan Roderick said about lesson market years ago, and how unique it is, and how you can get a beer, go in the middle of the square, and just talk with, just start talking with anybody there. Right. And the thing, and the thing is, this is what they do. Black people, they they go there. They get that they get they either they get that coffee or people, as you know, like uh, like my stepfather. You know, when when they go from that program, they go to election the market to sit around and congregate. Whether it's drinking beer, whether it's buying whatever they're buying, or whether it's drinking beer to sit there and talk. And so, in the midst of what's what's happening with Freddie Gray, you know they're going to be talking about Freddie Gray. So why would you tra- so so if this is true, if they if, if they if they did attack any part of the market, why would you attack a place where black people sit around all day, every day, for maybe 10, 11 hours a day, talking about various things and black issues? You're kind of fucking up the whole protest, in a way. Because, you know, as, as I said before, I, I'm for, like, quiet protest. It's a difference. I mean, with, like, I was going to say, like, that's the issue you know, across the nation when it comes to this, and this has been the issue going back to, like, the L.A. riots and stuff like that of black people burning down their own community and all this other type of stuff. I guess maybe, you know, I guess, you know, after I've had some time to sit and think and read a little bit, I guess maybe the optimist in me feels like even with all of that, in this particular situation, and, you know, maybe it's just because it's Baltimore, but I do feel like maybe there's some good coming out of it because, like, it's interesting, like, you know, how you talk about, you know, the effect and how you get around. And, you know, like last night, you know, they shut down the bus service after um, a certain time. And it's funny because I was on the light rail and, um, you know, there's, uh, there's an Orioles game going on uh, last night. I think they uh, played the, the Boston Red Sox. And so... I'm on the light rail, you know, the light rail packs up with uh, white people during the Orioles games where, you know, 
usually you don't see an influx of, you know, middle to upper class affluent type white people on the light rail unless it does an Orioles game. So they start flooding the light rail, and I'm looking at them, and I'm just like, in my mind, I'm just like, you have no idea of what you are about to get into. And later on that night, um, you know, after the game, they made everybody stay in the stadium and so they could clear it out a little bit outside. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, that's one thing. And then another thing, too, is I'm reading the paper and um, there was a quote from, and I took a note of this, there was a quote from the uh, one of the owners of the Pratt Street Ale House, uh, which I believe is in Canton, and um, he said, um, we just hope it's a safe night for everybody involved. Normally, this is a busy Boston baseball week for us, and this is troubling that. And so, you know, while it is affecting us at the same time, the fact that you have these people who are in influence and power who are stuck in a stadium because of this and the fact that, you know, a prominent uh, establishment that usually makes all this money is now losing money because of this, like, it's not just affecting us now. It's affecting, um, I don't want to say white people. I guess the... Uh, the dominant power structure in the area is being affected. And so now they are forced to pay attention to these issues because Hmm. it's hitting them in their pockets. And, you know, even though some of it might not be, or, you know, like a lot of it might be coming from a questionable place, like how, you know, me and my girl were talking about it. And um, basically, you know, after the peaceful protest, it's a Saturday night and, you got bored people just looking for some shit to fuck around with and, you know, just act like idiots. And, um, you know, they want to do that. But, um, I don't know. I guess I have an uh, uncharacteristic, optimistic side about it <laughs> um, that is actually affecting, um, you know, people's pockets and that some change will happen. And um, I don't know if you know this. And, you know, my girl, she actually sent me the link. Um, on Tuesday, uh, Larry Hogan is supposed to be, um, and he's the new mayor of Maryland for um, all of those who don't know. He is... Governor. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm governor of Maryland. Uh, it is kind of late. Excuse my... Uh, <laughs> my <laughs> um, but he's supposed to be signing these nine bills into law. And... Um, I had it up, but my phone didn't finally pull it back up again. But um, a lot of these laws, I think there's about three of them that have to do exactly with this situation. Um, So we have um, HB 954, which will require law enforcement agencies to give the governor's Office of Crime Control and Prevention information about deaths of anyone in police custody and deaths of officers in the line of duty. SB 413 will require police to record demographic information, including race, about traffic stops. And SB 482 and HB 533 will allow law officers to record verbal communication with body cameras. So, you know, I guess in anticipation of of the uh, impending black doom that might be happening, you know, these... 
these bills are going into law that makes the um, city police uh, directly accountable to the state in uh, certain situations when it deals with situations like Freddie Gray. So, you know, in the midst of all the darkness, I do see a glimmer of hope shining through. Yeah, well, well, I mean, yeah, but um, I I know a lot of what um what I feel is you know based around my my uh my cynicism when it comes to a lot of things. Yeah, but yeah. um, I mean, when also when it comes to protests, you know, I remember when um I was in um in New York for for that period of time, and um, I think I showed you this picture. And you know, you know, by the time I got there, you know, it was um pretty much past the height of um Occupy Wall Street. Mm. And you know, remember like, you know, like, you know, from like maybe let's say like the middle of like that period toward the end, after a while people were saying, you know, like what were they really protesting for us, people were just like outside, it's not doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um when I finally got to like to see Wall Street and you know, it was this large building and this one guy there, but of course he had like, like little barricade, I guess, you know, just to keep him in contained. But it was just him though. And he just had like this little, you know, this little, um, this sign that said, you know, I'd buy Wall Street or whatever it said. And, you know, he just had like his, um, he was holding his head and his hands or whatever like that. And, he just looked like kind of down, depressed, and just kind of like, you know, lost, you know, when it comes to what the movement became after a while. Just a whole bunch of niggas doing nothing. And, you know, it was all about Occupy Wall Street needing a leader. Right. And, you know, if you deal with, you know, anarchy and so on and so forth, then of course what I'm saying is pretty wrong. But the people that we tend to look to in certain periods of time t- tend to end up leading certain things. Even when, it, I mean, even like, you know, small sectors. So you look at a, a Martin Luther King, look at a Malcolm X. And right now within the black community, um, you know, especially like, you know, especially within the black community, you have a lot of people who are trying to model themselves, like how you said, model themselves out, um, after Martin Luther King with the dress and how he dressed and the glasses and shit like that, looking like a fucking pastor, mm-hmm. being in the forefront of things or, what, or whatnot. But I say that about Martin Luther King, but it's the same thing with Malcolm X, too. People try to look like him as well. Right. And after a while, when it comes to protest, when it comes to anything, you have to evolve because, you know, now, they didn't, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, they, they weren't dealing with social media. They made, they made things about getting on TV right. and doing certain things. Nowadays, we have social media, we have different things, we have smartphones, and so on and so forth. So I don't think parading around looking like Martin Luther King, like how some motherfuckers are doing here in Oklahoma, I don't think it's really helping you. Because obviously it didn't help anything around here. Yeah, you know what? I, you know, I agree with you on that because, like, when you see the way the media, especially like the television media, portrays things, and then when you... Just do a search on Twitter. A lot of people don't realize Twitter is a search engine. If you go to search.twitter.com, it pops up like Google. You can search anything and see in real time what's happening. So 
If you go to search.twitter.com and type in hashtag Freddie Gray, you'll see what's really happening in the street for the most part. And, um, you know, it's not all of what's portrayed and all of what we've been talking about. You know, like they say, you know, that was what happened after all of the peaceful protests. And there are some particularly, like, wonderful pictures that are um, circulating. One in particular that... um is uh, being picked up. Um, I actually just saw it on uh, In Flex We Trust, uh, Funkmaster Flex's website, where it says, you know, in Baltimore, Bloods and Crips are getting together. There's a picture of these Bloods and Crips and Nation of Islam dudes all in this picture. Everybody's throwing up their sign and they said or whatever, and they're just all together in unity. And that really hit me, like, oh, man, like, you know, maybe there is some type of positive out of this, like some type of conscious awakening of people. Um, And the national media, the mass media, or whatever you want to call it, the television, um, isn't going to show that. And it just goes back to when uh, Gil Scott Heron said that, uh, it was him who said that a revolution will not be televised, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, I guess it is time for, you know, new methods and new practices to, uh, I guess, a whole new strategy. And I think that's one thing that's lacking here is, you know, back then with the protests, they were organized. They had the schools that taught you how to do what you were doing, how to act, how to conduct yourself in the midst of this. And now it's just a whole bunch of chaos. You have all these different groups vying for power and different philosophies and ways about going about it. And it's just like there's no real unifying force other than just straight black love. But that's only going to get you so far without, you know, a strong leadership of organization. And I guess it kind of goes back to what I was saying about my experience in protests where, you know, when we had the organization and leadership and the and the tactics, it worked. But when it's just a whole bunch of people just doing whatever, it doesn't work. Yeah. And um, I guess it goes into, like, you know, how we were talking before about, um, you know, it seems to be that one of the main leaders who is um who is uh leading you know the charge in this movement in the city is Pastor Jamal Bryant. Yeah. And um you know, I see him standing next to, you know, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake and uh police commissioner Bats. And I'm just thinking, why are you there? What role do you have to play in any of this? And that goes back to, you know, the power plays and all of that. And are you really for the people? Like, for people who don't know, um, uh, Jamal Bryant is pastor of a mega church by the name of, I believe, Empowerment Temple. That's his church, right? Yep. And, um... You know, he has a questionable history in terms of, uh, I guess, non-Christian activities in terms of um, uh, adultery, uh, multiple baby mamas, you know, at least one who's come from his congregation and his wife left him and those other type of stuff that 
is, uh, I guess, very unchristian of him. And for him to emerge as one of the leaders and people follow him, um, and you already see, you know, the type of person he is um, through, you know, the media and everything. Of course, I can't attest to what type of person he actually is, but, you know, it's, but, you know, these type of things, when you profess one thing and do another in public, um, it's like, you know, do you want this person leading you? And it's like, who will we picking to lead? And um, it made me think about, you know, the role of the black church. And, you know, when you talk about updating your strategy and everything like that, it's like back in the day you had Martin Luther King and you had Malcolm X. And the religious institutions were really um, a, uh, a, a cornerstone of the black community and the movement and, you know, organizing and, you know, providing leadership and everything like that. But I don't really, and, you know, the like just the moral philosophy behind everything. And I don't really see that happening now, but you still have these pastors and preachers who are out here um, trying to play that role for, you know, whatever purpose they're doing it for, probably money and political gain and all that. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I pretty much, I think you just you pretty much summed it up when it comes to uh, Reverend Jamal Bryant. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I think to a certain extent, you know, before we, we, uh, we start recording, it kind of goes back into like, you know, what I kind of said about, um, affluent blacks. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, how they tend to be like really uppity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know how a lot of these types of like these type of people they come in from the suburbs or wherever they come from. Right. They're from out the hood, but they come into they come into that area to go to the empowerment temple, and then they just leave to to go elsewhere back into their you know into their next homes. And we get the, we get these people back. Someone, someone with this type of you know power and prestige within the, within the community, but at the same time they're kind of detached from I guess certain realities, right? And I think sometimes these these types of um, black people can be kind of detrimental compared to you know the people who are, who are actually you know out there riding and who have experienced certain things compared to these um, affluent um, black people. But when it comes to who should be leading, you know, and we, me and you have spoke about this, you know, if anything, it should be Baltimore Black. The right. people who are actually constantly out on the board, they, they have a beat, like a cop. Constantly out on the block, protest every week, but no one talks about them. They got to talk about fucking Jamal Bryant, who sits up and whatever, whatever type, he probably, I'm sure he goes back home to a suburb too, and whatever, wherever he goes to. Wherever he goes to, and he can he he can escape from where from where he from the empowerment temple wherever it, wherever it is, uh-huh. and then go back to it just like just how just how these affluent black people do the same thing. But you have people like Baltimore Block who are constantly out on the same streets that Freddie Gray walked, where Freddie Gray was killed and slain, and where the cops come and and fuck with black people all day long, but no one cares about them now. All last time I heard about them was through the uh, through the Dan Rogers show. Right, right. And that was a while ago. And, you know, just, I mean, just pulling up their Twitter account, you know, 
they rep for, you know, like this particular Freddie Gray situation has a lot of light, but when you go through the Baltimore Block Twitter account, you know, they're still repping for, you know, Tyrone West. Um, I'm just going through. This year before Freddie Gray, there was also Trayvon Scott who died in Baltimore police custody. They said he had a, quote, asthma attack. Um, and, you know, you just go through their Twitter account and they they just list everything that's been going on and all of that. And it's like they're really keeping a record of everything. It kind of reminds me of um, back in the day when you had the Black Panthers who policed the police and they used to follow them around and keep a check on them. Another person does that is uh, Baltimore Spectator. Um, he has a Twitter account. He's always updating on everything that's happening um, in the street. So, you know, definitely check out Baltimore Block and check out Baltimore Spectator. But, um, you know, um, um, they're definitely uh, people who are, you know, definitely updating you and all that. And um, I think that I think that people have a traditional idea of what a leader looks like. And so you have these, on one side, you have the people who play up to that. And you have, you know, the people who, and they kind of, like the people who are actually probably, probably more suited to be leaders are ostracized from that and are made to be seen as um, hoodlums or thugs and they're demonized and they're kind of pushed out to the side and not mentioned or anything like that. And I guess that's kind of my mindset when, you know, when I find myself uh, criticizing some of the activities that are going on and definitely, you know, a lot of it, you know, probably does deserve some criticism and everything like that. But at the same time, I try not to judge. I try to put myself in these people's shoes and everything like that. Um, I guess, you know, how, like, white people, just, you know, they say, check your privilege, check your white privilege. I guess I got to check my black uppityness, you know, <laughs> and um, really try to, you know, understand and... um you know, see kind of the bigger picture of everything that's going on and, you know, the history of police brutality and misconduct and, you know, how much of it is reported that's probably 10 times as much that's not reported or ever even spoken of and, um, you know, stories that I've heard that, you know, people didn't uh, report it for fear of retaliation from the police because, you know, if you don't have an escape, like how you were talking about how Jamal Bryant has, if the police do something to you and you report it and you come back to the same area and that's being patrolled by the same cops, now you're a target of the police, wherever you do. So it's mm -hmm. like there's a culture of fear that's created to where you can't even speak up for yourself. And it's like you're just a part of the criminal class. And so, like... um I definitely uh, empathize and sympathize with, you know, the people who are, you know, acting, quote, unquote, you know, stupidly or, you know, rowdy and everything like that. Um, not to say that, you know, a lot of them don't deserve criticism. Like, there's this one uh, dude and this, oh, man, this guy, he was being arrested by the cops. I guess he was throwing rocks and bottles and stuff. 
and they finally chased him down and got him, and they had him up on the camera, and you could just see a piss stain. <laughs> and, like, he peed on himself, and that was with my girl. We were watching it, and he was like, you know, you come out here, and you do all this shit, and you acting all hard, but you're peeing on yourself when the cops come <laughs> and get you. So, and then it's funny because, you know, we took a um, picture of the TV screen, and she was going to post it on Facebook, but she pulled up Facebook and saw that somebody else had already posted a picture of it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, you know, um, even so with that, you know, I just see, like, I sympathize with the emotions and the reactions of people, but at the same time, um, people kind of need a leader. They need somebody who's going to be able to pull together, um, the, um, like how they always say, you know, black people, we're not a, uh, I don't know why the words is escaping me right now. We're not a monolithic group. So someone who can pull together the disparate parts of our community and our blackness and find the central theme and bring us all together under one cause, one ideology, one philosophy that's actually going to work to enact change and really put together a point-by-point program of this is what we want, this is how we're going to get it. If we don't get this, here's the repercussions that are going to happen, and really just break that shit down and just do it. And that's not really happening. Matter of fact, um, another group that's uh, doing things, um, I think there's a group called Black Lawyers for Freedom. And actually, you know, they seem like a pretty good group. Um, and they're actually planning to have another rally uh, next weekend, so you know maybe we'll get the same thing happening again. But um, I tell Leah of it, his name is actually Malik Shabazz, and um, mm-hmm. he, um, I was reading in the paper, he um, had a group of people he was talking to him, and then he said something about he said something to them, and they just ran and just started like messing stuff up in Camden Yards. And it had the complete opposite effect of what he wanted, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. It definitely has to be a change in strategy and leadership. I think that before these rallies and things are called, there needs to be... Like, if you're not going to sit down and train people, you at least need to have something online about, you know, proper conduct you know, proper strategies and, you know, philosophies and things about it and put it in a way that the layman can understand. Because, you know, when Martin Luther King was doing that shit, you know, they they had training on putting tires around you so that the dogs can't bite you. They had training on how to react when a violent police officer comes and all this other type of stuff. We don't have any of that. We just have a bunch of people showing up and a bunch of people who claim to be leaders speaking and saying what we're going to do and people interpret that as how they will and they just do what they do. I mean, yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't really think, you know, like, like, the, like you know, our, our criticisms on, um, on how, on how the, or the rides haven't gone is black uppityness. I think it's, I think it's human to think about the other humans that you can be potential that you are harming. Right, right, right. Do this type of stuff um, because you know we, we we certainly know that every you no know, when it comes especially when it comes to cops it seems like that's what they've pretty much been targeting. Um, every cop isn't white. 
we dealt with black cops who were just damn just as worse as the fucking white cops. Right. And and you know, just thinking about that and um I see I see like it, it, the the thing when it comes to like you know thinking about like, a leader, it comes off to the point that you know we seem like we are though like this type of you know like a talented tenth type of Hobbesian, um, you know we we have like a Hobbesian type of mind frame that you know that that people need government and stuff like that. And well, I, see the, the thing is, see I don't know. It's like I guess. You know, I've been delving into libertarian philosophy and all that, and so I wouldn't necessarily say people need government. Um, well, I guess it depends on your definition of government. But I feel like, as a people, we can independently come together without government and create our own reality, you know? Well, well, yeah, but the, the, this reality is fucking other shit up that shouldn't, shouldn't be fucked up with. So I, you know, I don't know. I think like the, the um, I was um listening to uh, I think I think it was like the uh the Young Turks. It was something. Oh, matter of fact, I think the video you sent me about the guy who was tased the right. Um, and actually, my you know one of the cops, he was a, a big, a big, a big hulky black looking dude. Right. Um, and you know they were talking about how you know, um. You know, like the guy said, well, you know, we had to put in perspective whatever you said that you know that that um that that that, that people who are hired as cops aren't smart people. Mm. And what he told me, you know, like between like you know people who you know who who are hired to like you know to to drive bus routes and and police officers and so on and so forth, you know, they aren't supposedly they aren't the smartest people in the world, right? Um, or they or they aren't expected to be. Um, so then, what does that mean for you know other people who are, who are out there who are supposedly within this the same context in which um you have these people who do these standardized tests? I mean, cause, I mean, just looking at like the whole culture of how standardized standardized testing is goes to show that obviously. There is there, there's supposed to be some type of weird divide between you know people who who are about something and people who aren't. But then even when you look at standardized testing, the shit ain't right. I mean, because I was I was supposed to fail a bunch of times but when it came to standardized testing. Hmm. Um. True. So, and it's like, what is the standard that is um. I guess what is the standard number one that is supposed to be the standard, quote unquote, and then who is defining this standard and why are they doing it? So it's mm-hmm. like look at the police. You know, the government is 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 um, defining the standard, and the standard is you don't want somebody who is intelligent enough or you know, you, you, you like like you don't want somebody who's smart, who's an independent thinker, who is going to question things. You want somebody who's just smart enough to be able to act independently, but defer to a hierarchy of a command chain, and 
feel good about being in power over somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the goals should be to just completely change the structure of policing from the ground up, coming from how you hire these people, redefining the standards of what makes a good police officer mm -hmm. and all the other type of stuff. Because you have these police officers, they're kind of like a gang. And, like, when, you know, I showed you that video or whatever of the guy being tased, they mm -hmm. they banked him just like a nigga would bank a nigga on the street. Except they have, you know, tasers and all kinds of kind of stuff, and they can lock you up and all this other type of stuff. So it's like we need to redefine the standard of the type of person who is a cop because apparently the type of person that you're hiring to be a cop now is the same type of person who's going to be a blood or a crip. Yeah. Um, in a legalized fashion. Shit, I mean, and, I mean, the same way with the, the bus drivers, the bus drivers at least in Baltimore, I know some of them, they throw up gang signs <laughs> in the window and shit. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, and, like, you know, thinking of that, um, I was listening to, uh, This American Life earlier today. And um, this is something that I, I wanted to bring up for this episode. I, I think it fits in perfectly. Um, have you heard about the ONS, the uh, Office of Neighborhood Safety in Richmond, California? I have not. Okay. <clears throat> well, to make a long story short, Richmond, California was, like, I think in, like, the top ten of, you know, like, one of the most violent cities in the country. Yeah. Um, and then the city council, they were thinking about, um, declaring a state, of, a state of emergency um, in, in the area. And so they brought in this guy, um, I think his last name is Bogans, and I believe he was some type of ex-convict or whatever like that, but he, he's had some type of experience of dealing with these types of situations. And so he, so he, um, he, so he sent in his, he sent in, he sent in his plan, and it was approved, and they said that, you know, they want him to devote three years to this, um, to this issue. And so the issue is essentially, they used to, they used the, um, statistics of the people who are most likely to, to be shot, or whatever like that, or be involved in a crime, or do a crime, or, or shoot people, or people that they know who have shot people, but they can't, can't prove it. Mm -hmm. They reach out to them and tell them about a meeting that happened in City Hall. And so they, they mail them, they go up to them, or whatever like that. And then so whenever, so when the meeting comes, they sit them down, and they have, like, these special tables. And so the people who, who do agree to come, um, they have, like, a special table for them, and they address them by their last name, like, you know, Mr. Williams or whatever like that. They sit down at the table, and they address them, you know, as Mr. by their last name, giving them respect. And they pretty much tell them that, you know, in so many words that, you know, we know that you guys do a so-and-so, you guys are a high risk or whatever like that. You're not really, you're not in trouble, but we want to give you $1,000. So the first time, the very first time they did this, handed out a thousand, like thousand, um, $1,000 checks to each of the individuals. I think individuals, I think it's maybe like 10 of them, something like that. And pretty much they're just using positive reinforcement in an effort to try to make them do better. Um, and this has been like an ongoing thing for years now, and it has gotten, gotten like a lot of criticism. And so pretty much they kind of put people in these programs, they kind of call, they kind of call them like fellowships, and, 
um, you're supposed to, like, the people are supposed to lay out, like, they, the list of things they want to do. So a lot of times, of course, is like, get, get, get that GA, their GED, get their license, um, get a job, stuff like that. And then so they pay you based on your progress and, and you know, and how you're progressing. And at the same time, within, within this, within this, um, this timeline of your progression, they do expect you to actually still get, you know, still be involved in certain things that's going on and still, you know, maybe even go to jail. Even if you go to jail though, um, they, you're still like a fellow, but you just won't get, you won't get like enough money. So like the, so like the monthly rate in which they pay you is between like 300 to $1,000 a month, but then you can get paid even more if you somehow you align with someone from like a rival community and you guys both try to stop um, violence altogether and you can get paid like thousands of dollars a month doing it. Um, and so, um, they, they spotlight like this one guy and, um, you know, he's like, he's like one of their, um, their best examples of the program. He got like this really good job at some type of factory doing some type of oil shit or whatever it was. And, um, they, and so they, they sent him to represent the program at like one of the like President Obama's like programs, whatever like that. Um, you know, they were highlighting, I guess, black progress or something like that, you know. And the thing was though, he said the same, when he, when he was there though, he was like on national television speaking for him, he was still selling like weed at the time. <laughs> And he said that, you know, at least in California, he said by that time that like, he was selling coke at first. But then when he started, like, realizing, like, like you know, like, his progression or like, what people were telling him, he realized he should probably, like, stop selling coke and start selling weed because he realized that, you know, selling weed, well, you know, it wasn't, it wouldn't get him locked up. So pretty much in the sense, though, um... They just want to see the, the progression within various people, and so I think of like a little over, like maybe I think forty-five or like fifty percent or sixty percent. They've um, sixty percent, like a little over, a little more than half of the people who have been in this program over the years, they have like actually kind of done something with themselves. Although it's still like highly controversial, and even um, it has it runs like on like a two million dollar budget a year. Um, the, Pretty much that money goes into like people who are ex-convicts and they like ride through all the, pretty much like Baltimore Block. They walk, they, they ride throughout the neighborhoods and they specifically look at, um, and check on like the people who are involved in, who are involved in the program. And then you know how Baltimore Block does. They go into like, the, into like neighborhood stores and barbershops and you know, ask people like what's going on in the neighborhood, like, you know, what they should know. And so like how Baltimore Block knows more than the cops do, they know more than the cops do as well. Now, hold on, just real quick. Um, are you sure that's Baltimore Black that does that, or is it that other joint that um, that's out on the streets every night? I can't think of the name right now. Okay, well, yeah, maybe it's that one, because I know that that's the one that's on the street every night. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's made up of, like, ex-convicts, and they come and they go to, like, the various hoods, and then they talk to the people who are out there because they're from there and they know it. Um, yeah, I think that's the other organization that you're talking about, and that is actually highly controversial as well. Um, I guess, like, it's kind of weird, like, the the thing that rubbed me wrong about what you said is that 
the impetus comes from the government and not from the people, it seems like. Like, you know, the government is paying these people to do this and that and, and whatever. And it's like the government is basically paying people to be leaders. And, you know, we have a history of um, having our leaders be bought off by the government to, you know, kind of like calm them down or mellow, you know, mellow them out or something like that. So it's like I'm I'm automatically suspicious of anybody who's getting um, government funds and then wants to turn around and start preaching a message, a message and stuff like that. But you know that that in particular seems to be working. But I don't think that that's the model to. Uh, I don't think that's the best model to proceed. I guess nationwide, you know, it's like the government is picking your leaders for you. Versus, you know, the impetus coming from within. So I don't know how we generate that impetus coming from within, but I think that is what definitely needs to happen. And I don't know if it goes to, I guess this is kind of venturing off on a tangent, but, you know, um, when you said that... um you know, they started offering these thousand dollar checks or whatever. It's like, you know, and the positive reinforcement to, uh, I guess, retrain people. You know, I just go back to that Killer Priest song, uh, Science Projects, and how, like, you know, the projects is kind of like the test subject or the petri dish for the government to do their experiments. So it seems like they're using us as an experiment to test out different ideas. Um, and in the case that you said, it seems like it's a positive cause and all of that, but it still kind of makes me uneasy, you know? Like, um, and it's kind of like looking at us as, uh, like, I feel like it's dehumanizing. Like, okay, you know, we're just going to have positive, it's like what you do to a child or like an animal to train them or something like that. Like, the whole thing with positive reinforcement and all sorts of type of stuff. I think it comes down to a cultural um, value on materialism. And um, I think a lot of that comes from just situations of abject poverty um, to where materialism is, you know, a big thing in our community, um, which, you know, it's difficult to to tell a poor person not to be materialistic, but you know, in order to make a huge sweeping change, I think somehow that need that mindset needs to be quelled, um, in order to you know get people to not necessarily act based on a um, positive reinforcement of a financial gain and do it based off of um, I guess you know. Empathy, love, respect, kindness, and all that other type of uh, hippy dippy type shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. So, well, what, so what you so what you just said is a good point. I never thought exactly thought about it that way because um, when I listened to it, I just kind of in my head I just thought that you know, like especially like, you know when they say like like how the meetings go and how they like and how they respect the, the actual people. And treat them as human beings to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's more like the one of the primary things that actually got me about the program. But um, I think what is a bit more interesting about the program is that like the money that they actually give they give to to the to the uh, participants, um, they come from private donors. So technically, so yeah, so the city or the state, or whatever, they they just they fund like the people who go out into the neighborhoods. Although you know, essentially, there's still private reinforcement, and then you know, the companies and private donors who are involved, and probably do have some type of say in, in, in the political system in that area, of course. Um, but then when you go and see like these abstract ideas of love and respect and trust, then if you think about it, if you want to be, I guess, I guess you know, more pragmatic when it comes to this whole type of deep, the situation, then you're getting into when you think about abstract ideas, you're getting into religion. And we were just talking about religion and how sometimes, you know, how the, how the black community is built around the church and how it needs to be broken up. And then so the next thing, you're talking about love and respect and trust. You know, if you want to be practical, that's probably going to go into the realm of religion and most likely Christianity if you're in the black neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to venture off into a deep topic of... Uh I guess religion and morality and things like that. Um, I guess when you talk about love and respect and trust and all that other type of stuff, um, when you view it from a religious standpoint, it's kind of the same thing and it's kind of the same mental training because, like, when you're dealing with the religion, it's like, you want to practice love and you want to practice empathy and you do this whole golden rule thing, but I guess it comes down to why are you doing it? Are you Mm -hmm. doing it because of the goodness of your own heart and because of your own central morality that you've developed over the years and stuff like that? Or are you doing it out of fear of repercussions of this um, higher power that you would call God and that he's going to strike you down and send you to hell. And Mm -hmm. if that is your motivation for it, then is that true morality in the same sense of you have this higher power and force of the government giving you this money to go and do these things? And it's like, would you be doing these things without it? And if not, is that a true morality? And are we looking for a quick fix? Or are we looking for a true morality and upliftment of our people on a deeper level that comes from inward instead of outward? You know? Mm-hmm. So it's like the religious aspect of bowing down to this higher power is kind of like a training mechanism to train you to always defer to um, what has been told to you to be the higher power to to defer to since birth. So I think that our people especially, um, you know, coming from slavery, you have to bow down to so many different people. You got to bow down to God. You got to bow down to Jesus. You got to bow down to the slave master. You got to bow down to the white woman uh, walking down the street. You can't look her in the eye. And, you know, through, through the years, that whole bowing down and um, situation comes down into you do certain things so that you don't get checked by your higher power or so that you get rewarded by your higher power. 
So if everything that we're doing is based off of some type of external influence, um, you know, is that really beneficial to cultivating some type of culture, you know? And I mm-hmm. guess to bring it back to um, this situation um, with the Freddie Gray, it's like, you know, you can you can do that shit for so long, but eventually it's going to bubble up and it's going to explode. There's only so much that you can take because all that bowing down and, you know, doing shit based off of being struck down by a higher power, it's going to, um, like, I think there's something natural in people that you know that's not the right thing and you're only going to take it but for so long. And you look at Freddie Gray, you know, we don't know all this you know, the uh, particulars and the details and everything like that. But, you know, one story that I read, I said earlier, you know, is that, you know, the cop looked at him and he ran because he's used to getting his ass beat by this cop and he's not going to take it anymore. But he could have turned around and started fighting the cop, but he knew that he couldn't do that. But at the same time, whatever situation he was in, he wasn't going to take it anymore. And then now you see these people who are, um, took the protest, from a level of protest to rioting and they're actually from the community and it's like they're not going to take it anymore you know fuck the police <laughs> yeah um, I don't know if all that made any sense or went together I was kind of like rambling on a tangent yeah. no I mean no I mean it it makes sense but um you know I, I think a while ago me like a long time ago me and you got into a conversation about you know Simple gestures that, you know, that, that we do in society, whether it's, you know, holding the door for someone, you know, or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, who are you doing it for exactly? Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for you? And anything you do kind of has to be done for you. You know what I'm saying? In particular, because, I mean, you know, if you don't, have, if you don't get any type of feeling from it, then you're not going to do it. And, you know, it's interesting to see different perspectives on this because, you know, scientists have um, gone into it and, you know, I guess the evolutionary benefits of altruism um, versus, you know, just straight being selfish and all of that and the community aspect and how we're social creatures. And I guess, you know, the way I break it down is... um, and this may be like a simplistic way to look at it, but I feel like I feel like it's only right if you feel pain from something and then you can recognize then you can recognize when somebody else is in pain from something. And so when you recognize that you know it triggers something in you to where you're like, damn I know how that person feels. I don't want to feel that way because I know it feels bad. And I don't want anybody else to feel bad. So let me help this person who might be feeling bad. And then I don't want to do an action that would make somebody feel that way because I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me. So I think that line of reasoning... um, is like the building blocks of, you know, empathy and morality and stuff like that. And so 
you know, that type of thing is internal and that type of thing is, you know, kind of developed over, you know, life and experience. So it's like, you know, when that is, when that internal motivation for helping people and not causing harm to people, when that internal motivation is removed or suppressed or undeveloped by these external forces, um, I think that's when you get all this weird shit happening, you know? Mm. Like, you know, when you get this, uh, like, authoritarian type of dictatorship type of police relationship with the community and the government and the community and then the government with the police now. So it's like it's like a weird triangle versus the state and the police and the people. And mm. where it's all externally motivated by forces that are pushing you to do certain things to where, you know, if you develop, I guess, what they call the emotional intelligence of, you know, empathy and respect and love and all that based off of, you know, just general empirical altruistic things, um, maybe everybody would just chill the fuck out. You know, maybe that's some real hippie dippy optimistic, uh, unrealistic type of stuff, but I kind of feel that way. Well, I mean, well, I don't know. Well, me personally, being the being the cynic that I am, uh, it's, it sounds pretty hippieish to me. I mean, <laughs> sometimes I mean, I think some certain people are just too far gone. Sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do, I do agree with that. Um, and I guess you know. I'm thinking, like, on a long-term scale, like, this isn't some type of overnight type of thing, but yeah. I feel like it has to start somewhere, and I feel like we are, um, we're raised from young to um, respond to getting your head cracked. You know, your parents, they hit you when you do something bad. The cops, they hit you when you do something bad. And you might have abusive parents and you have abusive police and eventually, you know, you might fight back and try to better your situation, you know? Yeah. But if everybody goes to that hippy-dippy type, you know, non-cynical stuff I was talking about, which is probably unrealistic, but I feel like a leader is somebody who's going to kind of cultivate that within the people. And I think... You know, maybe Martin Luther King, you know, I know people have differing views on him, but maybe that was what he was trying to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, the various leaders throughout history kind of, like, saw that um, that's kind of the right way to go. I don't know. I mean, aside from that, it's like, what do we do to improve the condition of black people, and then not just black people, but all people in the long term? Well, I'm pretty sure Martin Luther King will probably say economics. Yeah. 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 And, um, economics is, um, I mean, economics, you know, that's, incredibly important and all that. Um, and I guess that kind of goes into 
a little bit of what I was saying about not relying on an outside force or the state. So, like, you know, as an individual, you know, you want to have these certain type of qualities. But then as a group, you know, you want to have certain type of qualities that are independent of outside forces as well. So as black people, we're dependent on outside forces. You know, if we're defining ourselves as a group called black people, this group called black people, we're all dependent on somebody to give us food. We're dependent on, you know, rent. We're dependent on hospitals. We're dependent on all these things that aren't in control of our own people. So it's like to control our own destiny. we got to start building some shit, you know. we got to start controlling the, method, the uh, methods of distribution for things that we eat, things that we do. We need to start controlling... The political process, when you start controlling the police, we don't control nothing mm. or very little. And then even when we get a black person in control, it doesn't matter. It's just a kind of a figurehead because the black person who's in control is at the whim of the higher power structure that is in control of him. Mm. And if he... um goes against that, he's going to get checked and he's going to be out of there. Yeah. You know, when, um, you know, like, you know, when we think of, you know, like certain groups who have, you know, who who have actually, like, done this type of economic, um, I guess, organization comes, I guess, the Jews and, uh, Koreans with the corner stores and so on and so forth. Right. Um, you know, I, it, when it comes to the black experience or whatnot, it's it's really exceptional, you know, because, you know, historically, blacks have been, like, the fabric of American society. Right. And the thing is, the way that we have approached um, our, uh, I guess our progress is through the lens of knowing that we are a part of, the, of, of we are a part of the fabric, the fabric of American society. Mm-hmm. And so we're treating this as if, you know, that we are a part of America, so we're going to be a part of it compared to Jews and I guess, let's say Koreans who know that they kind of came here and, you know, they just want to do their own thing. Compared to blacks who, you know, who we, we know that, we you know, we've built a lot of shit that, you know, damn everything that, that everything that pretty much made America is built on cotton pretty much. And um I would say that's probably one of the main things that that kind of hinders the issue of trying to really start this type of black business, um the, the, the this type of economic organization. Because, you know, a lot of black people they don't they want to be a part of everything that America is doing because they know that that they built it, you know. Yeah, and the, and, and you know what? That is a completely justified way of thinking, but America doesn't want us as a part of American. And you know, I've gone on this before. They call us African American for a reason. Because they don't want us as part of America. We're not mainstream America. We're not what you think of when you think of an American, or at least not what they want um, Americans to be thought of as, you know? Mm. So, 
you know, we have to kind of, even though the mindset is completely justified, it's completely rational, it makes complete sense, we have to go against that and start building our own shit and stop relying on shit, you know? Like, we can't rely on shit because we're not Americans. We're African-Americans. It's like Korean-Americans. They know that they're Korean-Americans. What comes first, the Korean? What comes first with us, the African? I think the difficult thing with us is that our history has been knocked out and erased to where we can't trace it back. But so far, so all we know is America. And then not only that, you know, we're taught history in a way to where we don't get the full scope and full size of, or you know, all the size of everything. So it's like we only know what we're taught by America. You know, you know, I had a conversation with a brother earlier, and um, we're talking about the school system, and um, we were talking about how, um, you know, I made the point like. You know, he's talking about how, like, the school system is all fucked up and everything. And it's like, yeah, but it's like, we trust the, you know, like, like the school system is run by the government. And it's the same government that enslaved us. So we're entrusting the same government that enslaved us to educate our children. So, of course, they're going to wipe out your history and have you feeling like you're a part of American, but then they still call you African-American. White people don't get called English-American or... Scottish American or something like that, you know, they're just Americans, mm-hmm. but we're African Americans, and so I think, I think, you know, when you look at language in the way that you know we refer to as language, I think there's a lot of deepness behind that, and you know, when we start to realize these things, that's when we can kind of start um, building power, and we, and if we can have a leader who can speak to these things, that's when we can, you know mobilize as a unit in these Freddie Gray situations maybe won't happen or if they do happen they'll be taken care of in a proper fashion. Of course um, to that anytime it seems we get a leader or any type of leadership or anything that we get for ourselves that shit gets knocked out ASAP and you know you can go to Reconstruction you can go to Black Wall Street you can go to how all of our leaders who actually make a difference get killed or co-opted or some type of shit by the government. Um, You know, America has a history of whenever we start to gain some type of consciousness or gain some type of autonomy for ourselves of just, you know, wiping it out. I mean, yeah. I mean, shit, look at Martin Luther King when he, after, you know, he came back from his, uh, you know, his, um, his, like, kind of, like, tour around the world or whatever like that, and he came back, you know, between, you know, Vietnam and Everything else, he he realized, you know, the, it wasn't really about race. It was about economics. And when you figure that shit out, he said it in that church. They shot his ass soon, soon, <laughs> soon after that. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? And, you know, me and my girl, we have deep conversations about this that you know we probably you know can't get into right now. But um, it's you know similar with Malcolm X when he realized that there's a whole other world, and you know everybody's kind of all together. And I guess. I don't know, um, it feels like, you know, they use all these type of things to divide us on these lines, but what it really comes down to, you know, we talk about economics, is rich and poor, and they divide us with religion, they divide us with race and everything like that, 
And not to sound too, uh, quote unquote Marxist, cause you know, we've had our conversations about the term Marxist and Marxism. <laughs> but, you know, when you, um, when you can unify all the poor people who, and, 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 or not poor, but all the people who aren't in that top, you know, percentile of the ruling class, when you can unify all of them, all of us, and get rid of these dividing lines, these artificial dividing lines, um, that's when, you know, some type of change can really happen on a bigger scale for everybody. And, you know, they divide us in so many different ways just within the divisions. Like, you think about how many divisions there are within black people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know... I don't know, I mean, this issue is, I mean, it's just so, it's so, so complicated, you know, because, um, the Civil War wasn't that long ago. Right. Slavery damn sure wasn't that long ago. They were still bringing in, you know, fucking Africans, you know, on the low after they, they, they supposedly closed the slave trade and, you know, I mean, 1619. I mean, that, that really isn't exactly a lot of time. Historically, mm-hmm. but just even the fact you just think about between you and me, sorry, between you and me, just thinking about time, both of our mothers kind of experienced certain glimpses of you know of um of segregation. Mm-hmm. They were involved in you know the rise of Martin Luther King. They remember when, when Martin Luther King and Malcolm X got shot, right, and the effects of it. Right. You go, uh, you, you go before that, how grand, you know, um, their mother, their mother was involved in segregation and so on and so forth, and then you go past that with, I guess if I say our grandfather, our, our, our grandfather's parents were slaves. <laughs> that yeah. is not, that is, that is a very short time. Yeah, and then even deeper, you know, our aunt got spit on by white people for sitting down in a white establishment with her um, sports team. So it's like... Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, you're only dealing with 150 years, give or take. Yeah. 200 at the yeah. most. Yeah, and this country is, what, how old is this country now? 1776, what? 200-something? 300? Something like that. Yeah, so I mean that's not that is not a short time. You know, it is a short time, so Yeah. I mean this thing that you know, even like, you know, the um the Monaghan report and shit like that. When you have a government official even saying that <laughs> pretty much it was slavery that fucked black people up and that's why the that's why the way that's why they are the way they are. Although there's a lot of issues with that report, but just looking through the history, I mean, you know, this shit is much more complicated than just, you know, simply saying, oh, let's start, let's start like a black business. Yeah. You know, like, like you know, the, the, you know, this is like, you know, what, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to slaughter his name, Naeem, Naeem Akbar said, breaking the chains of psychological slavery. Yeah. <laughs> shit like that. Because, we, because, you know, we travel to black towns of Oklahoma. Have a, more than half of them are all gone. 
the ones mm-hmm. that are still here only have maybe 200 people. They have dirt roads still, like it's fucking 1845. <laughs> the Black Wall Street was just destroyed. And you still have, um, I believe recently there was someone who received like some type of reparation from um, the pain and suffering and the house that was burned. Mm. And this was maybe like a year, a year or two ago. Damn, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I think she was like the daughter of like another you know, person who owned the house, and um, you know she's like in the eighties now. So I guess. You know, I hate to say it like this, but with all of this, you know, knowledge and information and, you know, things that we know and things that we're constantly finding out and everything like that, um, all of this culminating to this Freddie Gray situation in the city that we're from, right? Um, you know, to let his death not go in vain, you know, even though um, he may not be the perfect martyr, the perfect, you know, person or whatever, who is, you know, like, people always give this argument of, um, and, you know, it's a, definitely a valid argument, you know, you know, if you go on his Baltimore or his Maryland judiciary, you know, he had all kind of charges and arrests and all that type of stuff, but, you know, barring that, you know, there's good reason to believe his Fourth Amendment rights were um, were uh, trespassed upon, amongst many, many other things. Um, so his history shouldn't even make a difference in it. But, like, this situation, to let his death not go in vain, um, it can be the catalyst of a turning point for, you know, somebody to step up and really make change in, you know, not only our position within America, but our position within ourselves, if that makes any sense, you know, and just, you know, building ourselves up as a community as well as improving our condition within the community that we're in of America. Um and, you know, this is probably an unanswerable question, but, you know, where do we start with that? Like, what is the starting point, and how can this be used to uh, make a real change? Like, I guess, because, you know, this conversation has <laughs> gone in a direction that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um and we kind of ventured off into all of these uh, more abstract type of topics <laughs> and everything. But, yeah. um, you know, this is all focused on, you know, the police department, particularly Baltimore, but, you know, I guess on a more grander scale police departments against the country. And maybe that's all that, you know, this can do. But eventually something has to happen to where... um there's going to be a point of enlightenment and upliftment. And I think it's happening, but, you know, what is the starting point of of of, of, of making all these type of changes within our people that we're talking about? Like, what oh, do yeah. we do? 
Well, you know, um, even within, you know, um, this issue with Freddie Gray and all the other issues that have been popping up as of late, like the past, what, year now, um, or two, um, there's still, like, a very, I guess, a, a very important under, um, underlying issue that um, I kind of never, I never thought about because it, wasn't, it really wasn't brought to my attention until now, until earlier today. And that is with um, black women being slain by cops in the same way, damn near, pretty much. Oh, man, yeah, and that's real talk. That's on Worldstar a lot. Not that I check Worldstar ever, but sometimes it pops up on other websites, and you see how, like, black women get, get treated by the police. Yeah, like, you know, and, um, like, you know, uh, Rakia Boyd, who um I've never I've never heard about until today until someone told me about her. Um and you know how um she uh she was in the park or something like that with her boyfriend and I think someone else and they were making a lot of noise and a cop was in his an off duty cop was it was in his car and he told him like like a pipe down or whatever like that. Um the the cop off the cop saw um thought that Rakia Boyd's boyfriend had a gun but it was a cell phone and so he proceeded to shoot from his car. The same thing with that little kid. Shoot from his car and so he ended up shooting the guy in his hand, but at the same time he ended up shooting Rakia Boyd in the head. And killed her. And she was she was like I think twenty five, I believe. Um and he got off scot free. Yeah, I've been seeing things about that. I haven't had a chance to click on it, looking at, uh, uh, looking to it, but. And what's interesting is that the fact that, um, um, damn, I was about to say. Uh, a couple of women. Yeah, um, damn it. Well, I, well, what's interesting is, I mean, this whole idea of, like, you know, um, black male exceptionalism, and it's something that um, this article, I want to say, in the Huffington, the Huffington Post brought up, that it's, some, it's uh, some type of, like, I guess, sociological term that a black scholar came up with, and that it's pretty much this whole idea that um, we still believe that black men are more endangered compared to the black woman. Mm. Um, and, you know, they were, t- they were going into like, um, st- statistics, the article that I read about, um, how I think in the past 15 years, at least like 20% of like these types of killings have involved females. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's something that you just never think about. And, um, the person who, who, who put me onto it, you know, um, he's very upset about this. And you know, being a black woman, I can understand that. Um, but then it's interesting, though, because I think it just goes into, like, these types of, you know, it goes into, like, these gender roles that men and women have. So let's say, you know, when it comes to a black man, when you're a black man, your main thing is that, you know, you can't get a job because you're a black man to a certain extent. And then, you know, the cops are always after you and they're always fucking with you. Mm-hmm. But then let's say if you're a woman, you know, if you're a woman, you know, this whole, still this whole idea of, you know, morality and, and, you know, all this other, and like chastity and shit like that, which still exists to this day for some, in some type of weird way, you know, 
for women, it's all about you know being raped and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and or you know or, or being abused by a man. And then it's interesting how you see like these types of things shift. So when you see police violence on black women, no one no one pays attention to it. And then when you see like a, a like a man be like you know abused domestically, or if he or, or if a man gets raped, no one really cares about it. And so I think that's really interesting. I, I never really thought about it. Um, but then, you know, I, I did kind of, you know, because, you know, she was saying, you know, well, she doesn't understand, like, why this didn't get out because of social media and so on and so forth. And I see her point because, you know, it was something about that, like, no one came to a protest or something like that for her. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, um, I said that, right, you know, um, what, what I just said, you know, about these gender roles being switched and how they just don't really fit in with, I guess, um, you know, the major media. And so, of course, they want to push, you know, they want to push, like, the Trayvons on us, the Fergusons and stuff like that on us. Um, and then at the same time, you know, because of that, the leaders who, you know, we, we, me, we both feel they, they tend to be bloodsuckers most of the time. Mm-hmm. They're going to latch on to the shit that's hot because they want to be hot. They don't want to be cold and sit up there with no one else and um, talk about or kill a boy. Right. I mean, yeah. I think. Um, I mean, you just brought a whole new perspective. Like, and it's something that you know, it's it's, it's crazy. Like, just the role of the black woman, um, just in everything. Um, and how you said, you know, like how, you know, these things happen to women, nobody cares. And, you know, it's something we don't even think about. It's crazy because I just had a conversation about this. And uh, I guess I kind of forgot about it a little bit until you brought it up. And it's kind of like a programming of not to, you know, think about these types of things. But um, I guess within the black community, um and the gender roles and everything like that, you know, we have this whole thing of, um, and I guess it's uh, largely perpetuated by women and perpetuated by the stereotypes that are out there, but basically, you know, black men ain't shit, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I could get into, like, all the things that they say, but, you know, people pretty much know, you know, what they are. And the flip side to that. You know, I talk to a lot of older black gentlemen about this. You know, it's like, well, the whole culture would change if the black woman would seek out a different type of man, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, not go after, you know, the thug archetype or whatever and all that other type of thing. Black men will switch up real quick. And it's kind of interesting how... When you look through history of the black community, the woman um, doesn't necessarily have a leadership-type role that is uh, promoted and everything. The woman is always in the background. You know, it's always the man who is, um, you know, in the forefront and, you know, the leader of everything like that. And, you know, when we think about making a change, that's one change that, you know, we haven't spoken upon, but that's a huge change, and, you know, maybe that is a change that needs to happen. We need, like, a strong black woman to really come up and be able to uh, galvanize, you know, the people, because if you can change the minds of the women, the 
you know, the men are going to follow. And there's a reason why women get in the club for free and men got to pay exorbitant rates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I mean, well, I mean, as we know, you know, to this day, the <clears throat> I guess the the fight for women, you know, women's equality is still raging on. And, you know, my mother, I think she kind of said it best that, you know, when it came to Obama and, and Hillary fighting for the... uh um, the endorsement of the party. <laughs> My mother said, you know, that they picked a, a black man before they ended up picking a white woman, <laughs> which I think was cool. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, just, just thinking about the state of gender relations as well as race relations. Um, I guess within this context, and yeah. how. And, you know, I mean, how, I mean, it really seems like, you know, Hillary is going to be, become the president, but it is really interesting because, you know, I kind of thought that Hillary would have, you know, would have beat out Obama, but she didn't. I mean, you know, Obama had that fire. He had that hip-hop fire behind him, you know. Um, and he was... He was saying all of the, all of the right things, um, especially for that time. And you know, looking back in hindsight, especially now that I'm more uh, politically astute, and you know, I have more of a firmer ground and more of a you know a more solid view on you know political philosophy and philosophy in general um, than I did you know back when I was eighteen, nineteen, when I first voted for him. Um, and it was all stratified, you know, you're going to vote for the Democrat, you're going to vote for the black man, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, um, you know, I I really think that, you know, it was a climate and the time, I mean, you know, his whole platform was changed, he was going to change everything, he was going to do all of these great things. He was going to close Gitmo. He was going to pull the troops out of Iraq. I mean, just all these great <laughs> things and all these great promises. You know, I mean, he was the great black hope. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, whether or not he fulfilled that is a whole other uh, topic or, or conversation. But, um you know, I think when you look at Hillary, um, I guess there's the whole thing of, you know, a woman in leadership role of a whole country. And then there's the whole thing of her role involving her husband, Bill Clinton. And um, the point has been made, and I guess this goes into, you know, the whole gender roles and everything like that. The point has been made that, you know, the reason, like, like one of the reasons why Bill Clinton was so amiable and personable and people liked him is because they sympathized with him because his wife came off as sort of a bitch. <laughs> so it's like, whatever he does is kind of cool because his wife is a bitch. And... That whole thing of, you know, the nagging wife, the nagging woman, the annoying woman, I think she kind of carried that with her. So now you got a cool black man coming in. You know, she really didn't stand a chance. 
Well, maybe maybe uh, Michelle Obama, I mean, well, like how, how they modeled her, because if you think about how she originally was and think about her original role, you know, she was like a high-powered, uh, she was like a lawyer, right, at first? Yeah, I mean, like, if you if you read Obama's um, biography or whatever, um, I haven't read the whole thing, but I read, like, a good chunk of it, you know, he pretty much said, you know, she was going to leave him. <laughs> You know, he wasn't making any money. He was driving some car that had a hole in the bottom of it. And she was, you know, the breadwinner and the one sacrificing because, you know, you know, he he was really broke and paying off his school loans. And I think the only thing that kind of saved him was that book. And I think after he got in office, his main source of income was increased sales of that book. Yeah. So, you know, you know, she was really the one. Oh yeah, there was like um an article maybe in maybe in Ebony or something like that about um Michelle Obama's um like dress over time as she you know became you know first lady and whatever like that mm-hmm. and you know when when Obama was campaigning and um it went from her wearing these high powered suits um to her you know starting to wear like you know these these dresses with like soft colors and you know sweaters and shit like that. The thing is, I noticed that she started wearing these like old southerny type of wife dresses. <laughs> yeah, didn't really seem to fit her, and the way her hair is like she just looks like a old southern wife the way she dresses, but she doesn't fit it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and then I mean, even you know, like if you like see her like her like her power and like those power suits she would wear, like the same thing like Hillary Clinton, in which um I think within that same article. Um, they kind of like looked down on Hillary Clinton. I mean, they they were talking about Hillary Clinton and how she just always wore power suits mm. in a way, and which kind of like affected her to a certain extent. And that's why they were talking about how like that's like people like Sarah Palin was much more likable because she would wear power suits, but they would still be kind of you know soft and sexy in a way. And you know, I guess with with uh, Michelle Obama, you know, because I mean, you know, we know that she still has like you know. There's still issues that arise about her body, about you know, I guess her her hips, her butt, um, and and her shoulders. Um, and then there was something, and I think something about like how like she kind of like hides like her arms sometimes. Yeah. I think like next to him, because sometimes I mean, <laughs> she's uh, I mean, she looks. She, I mean, she has like an athletic, like a you know, like an athletic type of build. I mean, yeah, like, but sometimes, like, if she's not, like, hiding her, like, her, her arms and she's, like, right in front of, like, you know, um, Obama, like, he just, she can just knock that nigga out. <laughs> like, she's almost like a, like a, like a Serena Williams. <laughs> yeah, and then, um, uh, it wasn't, like, some, some uh, who was that white guy who was talking about her butt? Oh, man, um... I don't know. I mean, which white guy wasn't? You know, you could say no, Rush Limbaugh. I feel like it was Rush Limbaugh or somebody. But, yeah, you know, like, you know, who wants that big... I think even Pastor Manning said something about it. Yeah, he went in on her. Remember? Vaguely, but, I mean, you would think that he would be for the butt. I don't know. I'm for the butt, but that's <laughs> yeah, that's a whole night. Yeah, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, everything that you're saying, like, like it all goes back into that whole gender role thing of, you know, Sarah Palin came off as 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 dumb as hell, and you know, I guess it goes into the man thing of, you know, the woman can't be smarter than you or some shit like that, you know, uh, you know that that threatening type of um, feeling when it comes to women, like how they have to be under you or subservient to you. And mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I feel like that is a puritanical, Eurocentric type of um, cultural viewpoint. And, you know, I don't know if my views are clouded by, uh, you know, various pro-black type of, uh, I guess, media that I consume. (laughs) But they kind of go into how, you know, from like, you know, an African tradition, you know, the woman played her role and there were still gender roles, but the woman was not necessarily subservient to the man. It was kind of equal but different, you know? Or maybe even the woman might have had more power. And then when you look at that religion system, you have women as well as men to where, you know, when you go to the monotheistic um, European Christianity, it's man-dominated to the point where you can't even have a female getting high up in the priesthood. You know, even in the uh, even in the the, uh, the holy book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like you know, um, when you talk about morality and all these things, and how you know external morality coming from a source of higher power, whether it be God or the government or whatever else, you know how that influences culture. And then how it, it influenced the culture that ended up influencing us by way of force, you know, by way of the whip, um, and how that has been ingrained in, into us, and how that colors our relationships with women. In addition to, you know, the, the, the you know the practices of slave masters, which I guess has been well documented about how they would separate families and beat the man in front of the woman to demasculate the man and so on and so forth um you know how all that plays a role into um you know antagonizing the uh antagonizing the uh black man from the black woman and vice versa mm-hmm. so it's like that whole structure which is kind of the foundation of you know, community and family has, you know, been eroded as us, as, you know, African-Americans or whatever. It was eroded from jump. It wasn't even there. We had to kind of develop that um, in a haphazard way throughout the years. And, you know, you see what we get now. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I guess going back to you know, the treatment of black women and everything and how they may have 
had like a huge integral role in everything that's going on, but it's largely overlooked. And it's like, you know, if we were to make some type of change, I think the elevation of the black woman, um, and, you know, not even just to say the black woman, because, you know, this is real black talk that we're doing right now, but the elevation of the woman in general, especially in minority and, you know, various, cult- I don't even like that word minority, but cultures that aren't part of the dominant culture, um, I think that the elevation of the woman would definitely make a big change in some type of way. Um, that's probably mostly positive because you can't really get too much more negative than what we already have now. this would influence the Freddie Gray situation. (laughs) I mean, could anything that we're talking about, you know, at what point could this, I guess, new consciousness or new whatever, at what point would this have had to have been implemented and ingrained into society to where this wouldn't have to happen? Because, like, you look at something like the mafia or whatever, And it's like they had their own system of policing and everything like that. And as long as it didn't affect the general population, whatever they did stayed between them. And we don't really have that. You know, we don't have our own independent. I don't want to say nation. That's a little bit deep. But we don't have our own independent governmental structure of the people. Well... Um, you know, I think when it, when it, when it, another element about like, a, I think I, I may have already said this about the ON, the, um, Office of Neighborhood Safety in, um, Richmond, California is the fact that, um, you know, when they did these meetings, when they would, you know, eventually give these people money, the participants of the program, um, they treated them as human beings. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember when I was like, you know, in the, my, like the parking lot of my dorming mall or whatever like that, and I was waiting for my brother like to pick me up or whatever like that, and um, it was nightfall around that time, and there were like three, you know, like you know, at this time, you know, nowadays they have like cops everywhere, and um, by like the bus, um, station or the, the, the transfer point or whatever, my dorming station, whatever you want to call it, yeah, and um. Uh, and so I saw it was like three or four, like three or four of them. They were just congregating, and I saw, I saw they were they were just looking at me, just wondering, like you know, just, I can tell they just wanted to know what I was doing there. Mm. So you had this one cop, and all all of them, I think two were black, two were white. So then one of the black guys he came up to me, and he was just jolly, and he just asked me like, you know, well, you know, uh, you, you all right? You good? You know, like you know, you straight? You you, you know, whatever. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I said, I told him what I was doing. He said, all right, all right. And then he told me, have a Merry Christmas. And then he walked back and he went away. Mm. And so I think, and, you know, I knew what he wanted. I saw him looking at me, but he came up to me. He he showed me respect and he just wanted, he just wanted to know what was going on. And I told him and then he left. 
And so I think that's why I think I think that's, maybe that's one of the main things about the programs I want to bring up is the mm. fact that they treat the people like they're human. Mm. And you know we you know we've gone like on a tangent about you know these you know abstract ideas because I think whenever and I think sometimes it, it is frustrating talking about these issues because. You know, we talk about the issue, then we break it down, then we go into, you know, I guess the, the you know, the, the 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 institutions that that encourage this type of, you know, this type of activity, and then we go into abstract ideas, and then we don't, and then we're all up in the air and shit, and then we come back down. <laughs> and you know, I think just that simple thing about just treating someone as a human is very important. I mean. Just imagine, I mean, just thinking about these people who, 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 you know, who most likely don't think that, they really, they don't probably think much about themselves to a certain extent. And it's based on certain, you know, like certain things that, you know, documentaries and so on and so forth and people that we do know. They don't have a lot of respect for themselves. And so if you go into somewhere like a city hall, you know, a place that we are, um, that we are kind of, you know, brainwashing the way to see as a sign of respect. You go, you're able to go inside the city hall and then you sit down at a table and it has your name and they address you by mister and it's treat you as an, a regular person. How that could, how that could probably change you. Just like something, something as simple as that. I mean, yeah. the money, yeah. the, the money is one element, and it is one of the primary elements, but I think just the fact that the way that they sit them down, they, they put them in City Hall, and they and they know they're up to some some type of crazy, violent activity, but they give them a name tag saying Mr. Williams or whatever like that, and then treat them as, you know, treat them as a human being, treat them with respect. And I think a lot of things will go away if somehow, some way, we can just have this, just, you know, this... This simple human interaction, which has yet to, you know, to to really fully materialize, you know, I, I go through this shit every day. I, I'm sitting up here with you, you know, we talk, we've been talking about fucking abstract ideas for almost an hour now. But when I go outside tomorrow, mm-hmm. with, with, with my books, going to seminar, whatever like that, there's probably going to be one or two people who just think about me and don't think that I'm doing anything with, my, with myself. Going inside a store trying to get a job, and the woman's jaw partially drops because she she assumes that I'm not a student. But then when I tell her I'm a graduate student, her jaw just partially drops because she just she just can't imagine, can't even fathom the thought of someone like me actually being able to sit up and talk about ideas that she probably won't understand. <laughs> mm. And that and that and I think that's the main thing about it. Just walking around and not really being seen as a human being since we are social creatures. And you're not being seen as that way. And it's the same thing that Frederick Douglass actually, you know, he talked about in one one of those books. Um, about the difference between, you know, um, African American slavery over here and then that's like, you know, slavery and, you know, I guess in, in, Greco, in Greco-Roman times is that, you know, if you're on the ship or whatever like that, and let's say if you're like a Roman slave, you know, a slave, you know, a, a part of the Roman Empire, they, you know, they recognize your humanity and they, they may even ask you what you were before you were a slave. Mm. 
and shit like that. But then, you know, chattel slavery here in North America, it wasn't like that. You weren't seen as any, you weren't seen as anything. And that's, and I think that's the main prominent, that's the main element that we still have yet to conquer, just the fact of just being considered human beings, obviously. You're just fucking shooting people in the head like it's nothing, and people are getting off, like getting off of it, getting off of it. And then look at Trayvon, you shoot, shoot him to death. I mean, the shit is crazy. To the point you just got laughed. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and I think you just broke it down so so eloquently. It all comes down to respect. I mean, and, you see, I'm not. One. Oh, go ahead. I mean, because like, cause the thing, because um, because um, I, when we were going over shit, like you know, before we we started recording. I forgot to mention that because um, I didn't have any intention on listening to, a, to, to to This American Life because after a while I get kind of tired of it. But somebody right. told me to listen to it, and I was about to turn it off, and then it, that came on, and then like after a while, you know, it's talking about it, it was like giving you like this whole background about the program and like the money. But then when it went to like when they had the guy actually talking about the pro like the like the process. And how they really make sure that they have these name tags and stuff like that. It was something really heartfelt about it because you do have people who, who are able to connect with these people who are doing it. And although, yeah, government money is involved, but then you want to be, you know, you want to be a pragmatist. What, in what situation nowadays is government money not involved in this type of weird way? I'm talking to you right now, and I am involved in government money. <laughs> yeah. And you know, like even like the like the the guy, he he was like he was they they were following him, they were following him around in the neighborhood. He was talking to like this um this 21 year old dude. He 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 had a kid on the way like two months. Um, and then he just wanted like he so and he just wanted like to like to talk to him real quick about like the goals that he set out for himself. Like, what does he want to do within the next four months? He said, he can "Get a job, get his GED, get his license, and get wealthy." Mm. And then so a guy said, "Well, what do you mean by wealthy?" And he said, "You know, and like just like the like the simple, I don't know, it's like the like the." The simplicity of certain things that people want. And he asked him, like, what is wealthy to you? And he said, you know, have maybe like $4,000 saved. Mm. And the guy, and the guy that said, oh, well, that's nothing. I mean, you can do that. You can do that if you just get a job. You, you can actually do that and save up for it. And then the guy even said, you know, like, he said it to himself, he said that, you know, I'm thinking in my head that, you know, he wants like a hundred thousand, million dollars, whatever like that, but he just wants something simple like four thousand dollars because that's a lot of money to him. Mm-hmm. And thinking about certain shit like that is kinda of crazy, but then the guy who was patrolling, you know, the, the same guy, he's like, you know, he's really, you know, pra- you know, he he's really like realistic when it comes to these situations because he says that let's be realistic, you know, he's still deep in the life, although he's a part of the program, he has a kill on the way. So when you have these type of issues that come out, like come come around. You have you know these survival tactics that come that come out. So 
he would be surprised that, you know, if he doesn't have any money, but he has to, he has to like, provide for his child, and he starts doing crime. He says that, that that's just, this is being real about shit, but he'll still be a part of the program because they're trying to help him regardless because they understand that he's a human being and he's going to fuck up. So I mean, just just that just that underlying that that main element of like humanness, humanity, is something that for some reason people still have yet to understand. And that's why when it comes to the rioting that's going on right now, like you're doing it to cops, but when they get off of work, they they're not they're not worrying about your ass. They're worrying about their their family, their children, what they got to do. You know, them saving up to try to get their kid, you know, a college education, whatever you want to call it, or whatever. Hmm. And so, you know, it's so you know, it's deeper than race. Although we talk about race so much, but there's all, sometimes it's just it's just about plain humanity and the presence of another human being. I mean, wow, man, I feel you on all that. Like, I guess you know, at the end of the day, it all boils down to. Um, a sense of humanity and respect and respecting each other as humans, you know, whatever race you are and everything like that. Um, Because I don't necessarily see a lot of that happening, especially looking at the comments on certain things on various social media and blogs and things of that nature. But um, I guess through all of the ups and downs that this conversation has taken through all types of uh, abstract or whatever types of thoughts, you know, it kind of all boils down to humanity and respecting each other as human beings. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Man, shout out to, uh, to to ONS, Office of Neighborhood. Um, Office for Neighborhood Safety in Richmond, California. Um, you know, they have a lot of controversies, you know, based around their, you know, what they're doing. And, and I agree with you that, you know, that type of strategy is not going to work for everywhere in the country, but, um, supposedly it's working for them. And, um, just like the way they're doing it, I really respect it. And so just shout out to them. And, um, Definitely want to give a shout-out to uh, Baltimore Block. Um, they're doing good work out here in the community, in the city. Um, check them out. Um, you can look at them at Baltimore, B-L-O-C. They're on Twitter and probably a lot of other places, too. Um, shout-out to Baltimore Spectator. He's always on the scene um, on Twitter. Um, look him up. You can Google him, and he'll pop up. And shout out to JM Giordano Photo, um, JMG Pics on Twitter, that's P-I-X. Um, he's a, a photographer who was out there, you know, definitely giving great photos of everything that went down yesterday, um, or I guess it's two days ago now. Um, and um, I, he actually had a violent encounter with the police that was caught on video with the police uh assaulted him but he got back up and uh did his thing and kept taking pictures so definitely shout out to him and shout out to you the listener shout out to everybody who's uh engaged in this conversation um rest in peace to freddie gray shout out to his family and 
you know, our thoughts are with everybody who um, has been um, personally and deeply affected by uh, everything that's happened. Um, and, you know, just shout-out to everybody who's been affected by any type of police brutality um, or just any type of anything, you know. Anytime you're arrested or you're under the, the uh, control of the police, you know, you know, just having the experience of being arrested before, that is probably the most emasculating, humiliating experience that I've ever had. Um, and when you, when you're in that situation, you know, at least to me, you can kind of understand, you know, when people have been arrested over and over again, sometimes, um, for very shaky reasons, um, I can understand why people react the way that they do. Um, so shout out to just everybody who's been through that experience. But um, I guess to take it to a lighter note, um, as we end this journey on this podcast, um, we were thinking of a topic. Um, if you were going into a protest, you know, what would your theme music be? What would be on your playlist? So... You know, what are some some definite records you need to have on your getting ready to go to a protest playlist? Mm-hmm. Um, damn. You know, like the the thing about like the playlist, if you really felt like it, it could probably be just, like just be like all reggae type stuff. <laughs> For real. Um, yeah. <clears throat> um, but no, I would, um, I think one, and that's the thing, like, I, I'm having, like, an issue um, thinking about names right now. I mean, well, I guess, well, since I remember the name right now, maybe, um, you know, for some reason, I would say criminology. <laughs> mm. Yeah, the Raekwon and Ghost joint, that's one. I guess the drums and it, the, the just the doom, 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 that whole, like, you know, that four, four type of thing and just everything hitting, and it gives you that militant type of marching type of sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, like, I was thinking of a list, and I was thinking about, you know, all of the, uh, the you know, the typical ones that you got to have. You got to have NWA fuck the police. You got to have public enemy fight the power. Um, you gotta have KRS one, um, sound of the police. Um gotta have something from Ice Cube Death Certificate or America's Most One that you can pretty much pick a song. Um don't forget the Predator. Oh yeah, and the Predator, yep. And um I guess I was thinking about Dead Prez, that joint, uh police state. That's definitely one. Um, I think Nas America, the original version that wasn't on the album because they couldn't clear the sample. That joint, um, that was from the Nigger album. Yeah. Um, State property and ODB. When you hear that, it's the sound of oh, That song just gets me amped up. 
And, you know, why, why are these things being on actual albums? I don't know. Sometimes it's a sample clearance, but Fair Man Dingo, I don't even know, because Styles P ended up using that same beat. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, was, I will say I was not a fan of the beat. You weren't? Nah, I wasn't necessarily a fan of the beat. But the lyrics kind of, like, made me like it more. Man, that beat is crazy, man. I mean, because it's funny how, you know, you, you mentioned the, the Cannabis and Bronze Nazareth. And you you like that beat, but you don't like the Fair Mandingo beat. Yeah, I mean, it just wasn't my wave. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I do think that, that is a great song. I wish I could get the acapella and, like, flip it some type of way, but... I, like, I do put that song as one of the greatest unreleased rap songs ever. <laughs> Seems like Nas has quite a bit of those. Yeah. Um, okay, and, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it's called America, but, 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 um, on the same album, the nigga album, um, when he's like, like, he starts off like, I just burnt my American flag, I sent, Three cracker Nazis to hell, and I'm sad. Yeah, that's, a, that's what I was saying. Yeah, America. America. Oh, because okay. uh, I get them mixed up because then, you know, he had that America song with Khalees on, um, on, on the double CD. Oh, yeah, that's right. This is the American way. Damn, I forgot all about that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, uh, bring the ruckus. Oh, yeah, bring the motherfucking ruckus. I guess if you, um, I guess along the same lines, if you feel like looting and smashing some windows, uh, Annie up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, damn. I see, I bet you. Damn, another one. Uh, Uncle Murder has a song with Louis Farrakhan playing the violin. Mm hmm. And um, I want to say Sizzler and Movado are on it as well. Mm. And I forget the name of it, but it was like, kind of like a positive, uplifting song. Uncle Murder has a lot of positive, uplifting kind of songs when you really listen to them, but I think that one in particular was kind of dope. Mm. Oh, um, uh, Can't Stop the Profit by Jay Rue. Oh, yeah, can't forget the uh, Law Library series by Pat Poos. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. I know your laws when you're out there, man. <laughs> oh, oh, and, um, and, um, and License to Kill by Pat Poos. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting about that song. Every couple of years, I come back to it like, oh, my God, I forgot about this song. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, speaking of that, you know, another Green Lantern produced joint. Uh, was it a mortal technique with the most death sample? It's like Bush knocked down the towers. Mm. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, but kinda. Maybe it was you, I'm nigga. Kinda... It was you. Bush knocked down the towers. It was you, nigga. It was you, motherfucker. Oh, that was on. That was on volume two, right? Nah, that was just on the um Green Lantern mixtape. Oh. I think 
I think maybe a Motor Technique and Green Lantern are supposed to do a project together. Did they do one? Yeah, they they uh, they did volume three together. Volume three, okay, okay, then it must have been on there. Hmm. Um, oh, um, nature of the threat. Nature of the threat. Yep. Um, shoot, Raska got a couple joints off this new album too. Oh man, uh, the Styles P joint. Um, off of his second album, Time Is Money. Um. The joint you do with Black Thought. Is it because I'm black? Is that what it's called? Oh, yeah. I think uh, Havoc made the beat. Black. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm black. That's another joint. Yeah. I'm black. Yeah. But then he had another one, Black Thought. That's a, that's a, it sounds like a real black song. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm black, definitely. Um, it's funny because I remember... I think uh, DJ DNA and DJ Radio put out a mixtape of, um, you know, during, I guess, the tail end of the mixtape era of uh, Conscious Rap. And you know how they have, like, Photoshop of all the different rappers on the cover. And Styles P was, like, right dead in the center. And it's funny because, you know, he had, like, Tyler Kweli and all these stereotypically conscious rappers behind him. And you wouldn't expect Styles P to just be in the forefront, but... You really think about it, especially at that time. But then, you know, if you're really a Styles P listener, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. Uh, uh, respiration. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. The new moon rose high in the crown of the metropolis, shining like who on top of this. It's yeah, one of my favorite songs ever. Well, shit. Oh. I mean, Simon says... Dun, 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 dun. Get the fuck up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um. Oh, you remember this joint, Marsh by Eminem? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um. That, oh, wait. Was that on one of his albums? Was that, was, was that like in between like the D12 thing? No, that was on uh, Encore. I was imagining it being much earlier than that. Nah, nah, it was an encore. Remember, encore was like half serious songs and half just him just fucked up on drugs doing dumb shit. No. <laughs> like a lot of albums. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Welcome to Jam Rock. I don't know why, but I just feel like that's... Like, 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 as I'm coming into the protest, that would be, like, my anthem. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Uh. Damn. I'm trying to think of ones that, um, that people probably wouldn't necessarily associate or, you know, people might have forgot about, um, Oh, Master P. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm still a black man living in this white world. I mean, shit, did you want to go that far? You know, uh, letter to the president. Oh, yeah, that's right. Damn. Okay. Oh, shit, Nas letter to the president. So I forgot he did one, too. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, Pat, Pat Detroit. Which one? Uh, I don't know, maybe like no play or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, 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 if this pops off down in Georgia somewhere, oh my goodness, that gotta be the anthem for them. Oh yeah. Give a fuck what you say. Ain't no more playing GA. Oh shit, man. Uh, Project Pat, break the law. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> break the law. We ain't playing. Oh, I need to go back and listen to, like, to that song. I need to go back and listen to Gutty Green. Actually, um, maybe I can I can gain a better understanding and, and a respect for it. Mm. I think because I mean you know I, I think I kind of reconcile with UCJ for the most part because it's interesting when you like see these type of people and you know like people like UCJ but they are like you know they they obviously they're like really immersed in music. Mm-hmm. And they know what they're doing, but I think, I don't know, like, just seeing them come up and evolve, you never really pay attention. And then by the time they they get to, like, like a, let's say, you know, DJ's age and, I guess, you know, status in the game, and him, like, you know, coming back, you know, with, with this resurgence and how, you know, compared to, like, a lot of people who are out, you know, just listening to DCJ's album, how it's, like, it's well-rounded, it's well-put-together. Yeah, he's talking. He's talking about a whole bunch of ignorant stuff, but like he's actually like rapping, whatever that means nowadays. <laughs> and it flows well together. It's not just like a random ass track in the middle that don't have nothing to do with nothing. Yeah, and he and he's just not. He's not just yelling on a track like you know, like, like a young thug or like a, a Rich Homie Corner or some shit like that. Yeah. Oh, speaking and, of that, another protest unity type of song is uh, my nigga. No, that's true. My nigga, my nigga, my nigga. Oh, um, uh, uh, two chains riot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna start riot. I'm gonna start <laughs> riot. Oh man. Um, let me think. Um, shoot, I was just thinking about some song. Um. Oh, yeah, Saigon, Color Purple. Mm. And, like, that one picture that I saw with the Bloods and the Crips and the Nation of Islam all together made me think of that. Mm. Another joint that gets me amped up is uh, Jay-Z and Jay Electronica's freestyle over um, that Soldier Boy beat. Mm. Where, where uh, Jay Z talking about chasing Yaku back in the cave? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, ninety nine problems. Yeah, I see. I was trying to go through my uh, my my, my Jay Z database to try to figure out if he had something. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe. Oh, uh, the excellence. What was that? Was that off of? Uh, watch the throne. Hmm. Um, I mean, shit, maybe even him to a certain extent, I think. Yeah. Oh, um, uh, fucking, uh, black skinhead and, um, uh, don't, don't, don't. Oh, uh, new slaves. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, shit, even I think Blood Moon leaves just based on the beat. Oh, hell yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of random and maybe, maybe a bit obscure, but, uh, but War from, um, from Memphis Bleak sucking up, no third album. Uh, I don't me, remember that, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that thing is probably like trying to be. I'll check that out. Um, another joint is um, maybe Why from Jadakus. You know, yeah, I was thinking about that. But I don't. It's on the. I think the beat is. It's, it's just too sentimental. You know, the niggas got to be. Yeah. Hearing some good shit so they can start destroying much in the market and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the one that he did uh, with Nas, what was it? Uh, was it How? No, it wasn't How. It was like basically the same type of thing as Why um, on his last album, The Last Kiss or whatever. Mm. Um, bang Bang by CNN. Oh man, we gonna thug this shit out to say bang. <laughs> oh man, you really trying to start a riot. Yeah. Um. Um. Shit. That shit I was telling you about earlier uh, with Oomp Camp and Baby D throw a chair. Mm. Throw a chair in this motherfucker. <laughs> um. Oh shit. Now I'm thinking about it. You want to take it to like a whole crunk level. Um, fucking low scrappy. Uh, what was that song he did? Um, uh, put your hand in your fist. Put your hand in your fist. I I can't remember how the song went, but I know that it would be a good song. <laughs> mm. Oh, the um, Bone Crusher. Never scared. Oh, yeah. We ain't never scared. That's the perfect song to stand up to a police officer. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of... Another thing I was thinking about, too, was um, just in terms of police and everything, I was thinking about jail songs. Like, what are some of the best jail songs? And like, of course, you got to mention Beanie Siegel, What's Your Life Like? Part one and two. Mm. And then you got to mention Nas, One Love. Um, that was another one I was thinking about. Oh, yeah, on the CNN joint that we mentioned on the last episode. Um, I'm in jail pumping iron, son, and reading books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I can really think of too many jail ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of artists, I guess they don't really. Um, well, they maybe they gloss over their time in jail. Now I'm thinking about it, like DMX. You know, all the niggas have been in jail before. Suck my dick. <laughs> 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 I think "Stop Being Greedy" would be a good protest song. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Y'all been eating long enough now. Stop being greedy. Yeah. Um. 
you know, coming up, coming up with like protests and all sort like a, a playlist kind of hard, harder than what I thought it'd be. Yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of, you know, kind of fits you. I guess it depends on your mood. Because, like, I know the songs that you're picking are more, like, about to fuck some shit up. <laughs> me, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about, like, you know, some some more deeper conscious type stuff, like uh, Killer Mike Reagan. Mm. Yeah, like, a lot of that running jewel shit and all that Killer Mike shit, but... <laughs> Yeah. Jay Z, huh. Young, Black, and Gifted. Uh, his freestyle over the Big Daddy Kane joint back mm-hmm. in the day. But, yeah. I, know, I guess I got to. I, I guess I, I got to eat it. Maybe that's why I was throwing up, throwing out, throwing out all those violent songs. <laughs> Headbuster, that's a little. Crappy drink. Now you said violent songs or anything about the name of the song. We some headbusters. We some headbusters. Knock a nigga out. We some headbusters. <laughs> oh shit, I guess crime mob too. Yeah, um, what's that song like that? Um, knock if you buck. Yeah, yeah, knock if you buck. <laughs> I, I, I can just see a bunch of niggas just screaming at the police. Yeah. Shit hard in the paint, I guess. Go hard in the motherfucking paint, nigga. <laughs> and pretty much any reggae song talking about chanting down Dusty Babylon. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Police helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Rest in peace to John Holt. <laughs> yeah. I was that shit in a minute. Yeah, I think um, they were playing it for a minute when he died. I, I don't know for some reason I was hearing it a lot. I think what um, I'm gonna do is make a um, I'm take some of these songs and put them on a Spotify playlist and post it up. But yeah, I think we got a good list. Um, I guess we can wrap this up. Um, All right. You got any final words for the peoples? Uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Not at this point. No, maybe yeah, next next week. Yeah, you pretty much said a lot. Um, hopefully, you guys found this conversation productive and, exp- and inspiring, and hopefully, you know, uh, get people thinking more in terms of you know. What are the things that are really going to make change as a community and also within yourself as a person, as a human? Um, you know, I think respect is a big thing. Respect of yourself, respect of the people around you, et cetera, et cetera, all that hippy-dippy shit. Um, make sure you check out channel10podcast.com. Hit us up with your questions, comments, and concerns. At Channel Ten Podcast at Gmail dot com. We're on Twitter at Channel Ten Pod, Instagram Channel Ten Podcast, SoundCloud Channel Ten Podcast. Um, 
Tumblr.com, iTunes, Stitcher, I believe we're on Spreaker, um, the list goes on and on, so just look for us, and holler at us, and peace out. Peace.